In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to another episode of Paw and Order. I'm your host, Peter Sankoff. I'm back after a little hiatus. I can tell you, I am not here with Camille Labchuk. My co-host, Camille Labchuk, is, and I use this word very deliberately, she is gallivanting around Europe for the entire month of July. And let me stress that when we get when when she comes back, she is going to try to make this sound as if it was this educational trip where she was speaking about this thing or that thing. I just want to warn all your listeners out there, like, don't have any of it. Camille is gallivanting around Europe and posting a string of Instagram and Facebook pictures that essentially are one long chocolate croissant vegan pizza fest that is essentially a vegan culinary tour of Europe. So uh, Camille is not here with us today, but that, ladies and gentlemen, gives me a very special opportunity to uh, welcome one of my very good friends and one of my best friends in the animal law area, Sophie Gaillard from the SPCA in Montreal, where she is the director of advocacy. Sophie, how are you? Welcome to Pawn Order. I'm great, Peter. Thanks for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure uh, to have uh, Sophie uh, on as a special guest. It's especially fitting because we have a very, in, a, in an indirect way, kind of a, a Quebec-themed show. But um, I, I, I'm especially pleased to have Sophie on board because she is the Director of Advocacy, recently promoted. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll hear a little bit more about that later, um, of the SPCA in Montreal. And they just do some unbelievable work, which we are going to be hearing about very shortly. But Sophie, I thought it would be interesting for the listeners. I'm trying to go back in the recesses of my memory and figure out how we met. Because you are, believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, Sophie, you are one of the first people I ever met working in animal law um, in in Canada. You, I, I met you before Camille, that's for sure. Yeah, it's true. We met a long time ago. But before we get into that, Peter, I'm, I'm a little surprised. This is a Quebec-themed show. On n'enregistre pas ça en français, Peter? I heard you a couple episodes ago speaking French with Valérie Giroux, and it sounds to me like your French could use a little bit of work. So je suis wanna... encore gêné <laughs> après que uh, c'était vraiment dégueulasse. Uh, je pense que mes professeurs de français de, uh, à Montréal uh, qui uh, m'a enseigné quand j'étais enfant, je pense uh, ils, sont, ils auraient Bien fâché avec moi pour uh, mon, 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 mon horrible français. That's all I'm going to say in French. I was just telling Sophie how terrible my French is, and, and it really is embarrassing. But my German's better, isn't it? Is that worth something, Camille? Uh, sorry, Sophie. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. We should probably spare our Francophone listeners uh, oh, thank the, you so the much. ordeal of your, your French. So, so <laughs> that, gives me, that, that gives me so much more confidence for these discussions. Thank you. <laughs> So yeah, to go back to how we met, uh, yeah, it was back in law school. I remember I was uh, studying law at McGill. I was 
I went into law school with the goal of, of doing animal law work, so I was highly motivated uh, with respect to learning the most I could about animal law, and I happened across um, your criminal law book um, and the chapter on animal cruelty offenses, and I was really struggling to make sense of this idea of willful neglect, which I'm sure we'll, you'll get to at some point in the podcast, and you had written about that, and, and so uh, I, I think I reached out to you to sort of help me clarify uh, that whole concept. And this was, of course, before the, the BC Court of Appeal cleared up all the confusion surrounding uh, willful <laughs> neglect. That, that was sarcasm. Just to, be, just, to be, just to be perfectly clear, that was sarcasm, was it not, uh, Sophia? Or are you uh, serious yes, it about was. that? Okay, good. Yes, <laughs> For a moment, I thought we were going to have a big debate about girling, one of my least favorite uh, animal law decisions. And that is saying something. Really? Yeah. Because because it's not yeah. it's not exactly a banner list, but let's just say our, our discussion today of a an important animal law case, for all its flaws, it's like ten times better than, than girling. At least it's coherent. Yeah. Well we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> Absolutely. But, so yeah, I remember so we got in touch and I think the timing was fortuitous because unless I'm mistaken, I think I happened to be in Canada or coming to Canada. I, I was working in New Zealand at the time and I think I was coming into Canada. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think that was the case. I think you would either you were on your way back here or you would just come back here. And then we embarked on, on a, a bit of an adventure together working on a private prosecution project, which was one of my fetish topics in law school. Um, it didn't end up working out in the end, uh, but we it did give us the chance to uh, do a presentation on the topic at the national uh, the American National Conference on Animal Law. And we also got to write about this together in your book. We did. And it was uh, thrilling. Uh, I was really fun. Uh, Sophie was a law student at the time. And it was really a thrill for me to work with someone who was so committed about these issues at such an early stage in their career. And we, as, as she points out, we first did a presentation and then we turned it into a chapter in the book. And it was, uh, it was wonderful working with you. I'm kind of sad we don't get the chance to work quite as much anymore. Yeah, me too. But I'm sure we can fix that, Peter. We'll figure something out. Well, anyway, we're working together today. So this is one of our, 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 our first new projects together. So I thought it would be good, um, um, Sophie. We've had um, your uh, uh, colleague at the time, and we'll get into that in more depth later. Uh, Alana Devine was the very first guest, as I told her, of her many um, honors and accolades she will receive in her career or has received already. There's no doubt that being the first guest on Pawn Order will always hold a special place in her heart. But she has been on the show and she talked a little bit about the SPCA, but but I don't think in, in, in the depth that uh, that we would have liked. And I, I, perhaps you can tell us a little bit, you, you are one of Canada's few working animal lawyers. And I thought it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about the work you do at the Montreal SPCA. Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, I'll tell you a little bit about what the SPCA does. Um, the Montreal SPCA is actually the first animal protection organization in Canada. We're celebrating our 150 year anniversary next year. Uh, we are mainly an animal shelter for now. So we take in 15,000 animals a year and run all sorts of programs, uh, so spay-neuter clinics, uh, trap-neuter release programs for feral cats. Um, but we also, in addition to our sheltering work, um, work uh, and have 
are active in the area of law enforcement. So we have a team of special constables um, that have the power to enforce the criminal code provisions that deal with cruelty and neglect. Um, and they also had the power to enforce uh, Quebec's provincial animal legislation up until this April. And I'll tell you hopefully a little bit more about why that's no longer the case uh, later on. Yeah, um, absolutely. Addition, Sounds like a good topic. Yeah, uh, I have I have a, a lot to get off my chest on that topic. If you're willing okay. to hear me out later, oh, we there's nothing there's nothing this show likes more than a good rant. So yes, wonderful. You will be getting one. Um, <laughs> so in addition to our our cruelty investigations work, we also have an advocacy department that I'm now the head of, um, and we work on various initiatives to strengthen animal protection legislation at the municipal, provincial, and federal levels. So we do things like comment uh, and testify on various legislative proposals, uh, consulting with government, and we also run some uh, public advocacy campaigns, uh, some of which have actually turned out to be pretty successful. So one of uh, the first ones that I had the chance to work on when I started at the SPCA uh, was the Animals Are Not Things Manifesto, which uh, had the goal of amending the Quebec Civil Code in order to recognize animals as sentient beings rather than just plain old movable property. And that actually worked and animals got recognized as sentient beings in 2015 uh, by our legislature. So that was pretty exciting. Um, you know, Alana was here, as you mentioned, Peter, uh, on the podcast to discuss our battle against uh, breed-specific legislation, which we, we won. Um, Your successful and battle, as we like to say. Exactly, yes. our successful battle. And another great success uh, that I was uh, lucky enough to be a part of uh, recently is our win in terms of getting the City of Montreal to ban uh, horse-drawn carriages uh, downtown. So yeah, we do a lot of great work, and my job is basically now to oversee both the cruelty investigations and the advocacy department at the SPCA. That sounds absolutely fantastic, and I wish you the very best in your job, Sophie. I have no doubt that you will do uh, incredible work. Um, um, I know you've already done incredible work, but I just know taking over, you're going to do a great job. I couldn't be happier for you and for the Montreal SPCA. Can I ask Thanks, a question Peter. about that uh, horse carriage ban? It's been very hot in Montreal the last couple of months, uh, last yeah. couple of weeks, I should say. Uh, I realize we're all cheering on the ban. It's a wonderful thing. Um, are horses still on the streets of Montreal in that hot weather? Uh, we've received a certain number of complaints uh, that there were a few horses out there. Um, these complaints, unfortunately, have to be handled by the city of Montreal. Uh, but yeah, we're really focused on the main thing that happened with respect to this issue, which is that as of 2020, we will no longer be having horse-drawn carriages in Montreal. And that also gives us the time to try and work with the city and the horse owners to figure out uh, retirement plans for the horses. We certainly at the SPCA uh, are more than happy to uh, work to place these horses in retirement homes and have them live out the rest of their lives uh, so in I, peace. I never let... Uh you know, legal name, legal drops go without some further probing cross-examination, because that's what I do. So explain to me why this is completely up to the city to deal with. In terms of... Uh, in, b b Let's we say have you, you heard some terrible complaints about Kalesha's uh, being operated right. in extreme heat. Why can't you do anything about it? Why is left Yeah, well, it depends on the nature of the complaint and the severity of, of what's alleged to right. be going okay. on. 
Uh, we have um, a city bylaw that basically sets maximum temperatures at which horses can be taken uh, out for work out of the stables so that we don't have the power to enforce. That's the uh, municipal inspectors. Um, you know, if horses were taken out in really hot weather and, for example, had some kind of heat stroke and collapse, uh, then we could potentially act under our criminal code powers, but right. Okay, um, so you do have jurisdiction, the ability to supervise. Yeah, if if there was an extremely bad event, you could supervise in that case. Exactly. Wow, sounds like a a very uh, busy, busy, busy time you have over at the SPCA. Has uh, has there been anything uh, uh, else going on very exciting for you aside from these campaigns? Well, it's a, it's a really busy summer for us. Um, we have our provincial elections coming up on October 1st. So as you can imagine, <laughs> we're definitely uh, going to try to milk the most we can out of these upcoming provincial elections to get things done for animals. So that's going to be the focus of a lot of my work up until uh, October. And we have a new campaign that's coming out um, in early August, which I can't tell you more about, but definitely uh, you can look to our website or Facebook uh, to, to be uh, informed of the latest news on that. Cool. And what about you, Peter? Like you, like you said, you have been uh, uh, not active on the podcast for a little while what yeah. have you been doing well, just like well, drinking drinking cocktails in the sun <laughs> yeah. this past month or yeah i'm not i'm not busy at all that's a good thing i have all the time in the world um so to be clear i i missed one podcast <laughs> it just so happens that we do them every two weeks so missing one podcast means i've been gone for a, a month um well, a couple of cool things have been happening recently. Um, this is a, a busy time of month for me when I'm, I'm working on a bunch of things in my legal practice where I'm a part-time uh, lawyer. And, and it was pretty exciting. It has nothing to do with animal law, but um, I won my first case at the Supreme Court of Canada. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, it was a case called... Uh, Suter. Um, I was co-counsel on this case, uh, and it came back uh, about three weeks ago. And uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting. It was nice to uh, be on the winning side of uh, of a Supreme Court case that we worked incredibly hard on. And uh, yeah, it's very sometimes rewards in this business are a little bit uh, intangible. But when you get one of these decisions, and and the court takes what you have to say uh, seriously, it's uh, it's really exciting. So it was cool to win a first uh, Supreme Court case. And yeah, next week, congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm going back in October. I'll leave that for a future podcast. I'm very stressed about that one. But uh, I'm going on a I have a trial next week. I don't do a lot of trials. I'm mostly an appellate lawyer, but I'm heavily prepping for an interesting trial next week. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, just because it's more animal law connected, is um, I've been invited to peek an eye in at a what looks like it could be a pretty significant um case uh, uh, on animal law and it's uh, i was contacted by a gentleman in edmonton who's bringing what looks like it's going to be a four-day civil trial against a veterinarian in a situation when the veterinarian was deemed to have uh, undertaken some invasive procedures without providing the well not the patient but the owner of the animal with informed consent sound pretty interesting doesn't it hmm. yeah very interesting yeah, so he's brought a statement of claim, and I get a bunch of these. There are often trials of this sort. There's a lot of vet claims that go through the system from time to time, and I can tell you they're pretty hard to prove. And uh, one of the reasons they're so hard to prove is because the concept of informed consent 
with respect to a pet is not treated quite the same way as informed consent. Like you, you get it, Sophie, if, if the doctor wants to do something um, on you, for example, right, you need a medical procedure, that informed consent requirement is pretty, pretty vibrant. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, of course. But with animals, it's not so clear that the same informed consent is required. And that's what's going to be tested a little bit in this case. And what makes it so interesting is it looks like a four-day trial where the uh, person who's suing, he's not suing for very much money. It's only $10,000, but he's managed to convince a bunch of veterinary experts to testify. And they're going to testify about the procedure that was done by the vet in this case and perhaps establish that it wasn't with what is required. And in the end, uh, it could end up being uh, a very animal-friendly type of decision that would help set some new parameters about the way in which consents in these sorts of cases could be given. So I'm going to be attending as much of that trial as I can and hopefully report back on it in a future uh, episode of Paw and Order. Yeah, that would be great. Sounds interesting. All right, we better uh, get in. We've got a pretty full show for today. So I want to start off with some news. There has been as always, a lot of news uh, in animal uh, uh, law-related matters, and I think a good place to start is a follow-up on the, the discussion of a case that came out last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Samantha and Camille talked about it. It's uh, the BC Fraser Valley Farm that was caught by activists uh, uh, committing some pretty big cruelty against uh, uh, egg production, uh, uh, hens in egg production facilities, and there's been some some new information that's come out of that since the last episode of Paw and Order. Sophie, can you fill us in on the basics? Yeah, sure. So like you said, this stems from some under some undercover videos taken um, back in April, but released uh, at the end of June showing, you know, the typical sort of battery cage scenario with uh, hens living with de dead hens, uh, hens buried up to their necks in manure, uh, that kind of thing. And the recent development is that the BC Egg Marketing, Marketing Board uh, conducted an audit, um, including uh, with a third-party auditor, um, and they determined that, in fact, uh, this particular barn was uh, below what's considered acceptable as per our gold standard national codes of practice and gold decided standard. um peter do you want to comment on the codes quickly no i just wanted to say gold standard just the gold, yes, standard. gold no, standard no please continue please continue sophie i'm nothing, just i'm nothing reveling less, in these discussions nothing less than a gold standard right um so based on these findings that uh, the bc egg Mar marketing board said that they uh the farm would be decommissioned uh, the eggs produced in this facility removed from market and the hens will be re relocated, but of course, probably not to a sanctuary, right, Peter? Probably back to another battery cage facility. Um, so that's the latest. What's your take on that, Peter? Well, there's lots of interesting parts that I think are worth discussing in this. I mean, uh, to begin with, it's, it's, it's just so interesting that we have the BC Egg Marketing Board. I mean, it's, it's a private organization run by egg producers. And, and, and I guess you can look at that in a number of different ways, but we've got, we've got an animal care audit, which these things have been going on for some time. And these animal care audits are then used uh, in promotional materials to explain how wonderful all the, uh, the hens are treated, because essentially the audit somehow guarantees that everything is going hunky-dory. And, and I guess my first thought, and I have many, but my first thought is, you know, do you know anything about these auditors, Sophie? Have you ever come into uh, contact with one of the, you know, animal care auditors? Are they animal welfare specialists by any chance? 
likely not. I haven't personally had the the honor of encountering a third party auditor. So I've been I've been told not. Let me just say I haven't encountered them myself. But a, an auditor is an auditor. What I mean by that is they're not they're not a person trained in animal welfare per se. What an auditor does is they make sure whether certain systems are complying with what the systems are supposed to do. But they they don't actually provide any animal care certification. And I can't say that I'm personally, um, you know, much more comforted by the idea that Egg Farmer of Canada have their own inspectors. Like, what does that say to you, Sophie? I mean, it's the usual story with these uh, farm animal uh, issues where it's the the industry that's essentially determining its own rules and then uh, conducting its own verifications of those of compliance with those rules. So a pretty screwed up system. Generally. Yeah, that, that's what so bothers me is that all this is painted and portrayed as something great. Like, OK, we're coming in and we're taking care of these things. And I'm like, but does it really give us the confidence or should it give us any confidence that anything good is actually taking place? And I found there was a quote in the story um, and we will put a link to the story in our show notes. This is from uh, CTV did a, a report of this. And, and here's a quote from the BC Egg uh, Marketing Board that I, that I find interesting. Our industry has a zero tolerance policy for any mistreatment of animals. And now I, I should, I should say that the quote goes on, but usually when I hear a zero tolerance policy for any mistreatment of animals, I usually insert in quotations what's not actually there. That what they really mean to say is any mistreatment of animals that are accidentally or otherwise discovered by activists right? Because exactly. it's, it's not like they're doing inspections. It's not like they're no. actually regulating. They're just, everything's fine until we see otherwise. And occasionally they'll send audits, auditors in on announced inspections, always announced, and they will check that the systems are running correctly. Like it, it just, none of this makes me feel any, any confidence. I mean, on one hand, I have to say that it's, it's useful that when somebody does something bad in the egg marketing industry, and I should stress, I don't want to get too much into supply management here because we'll be here all day, um, about, about the issue of how these things are dealt with, but eggs are a supply management product. So the, the egg marketing board of BC actually has a fair degree of power. You know what I mean by that, Sophie, right? Right. They can apply sanctions in terms of uh, facilities' ability to sell their eggs. Right. So they actually, unlike some of the other boards, so for example, the beef marketing board has no power because beef is not a supply management product. So as a result, they have no, or the pork the pork marketing board, right? They can, they can say, well, we don't like what you're doing, but they can't actually do anything about it. But the egg marketing board can, and I think in some extent that's, that's a good thing. But I don't see why we should be comfortable that a private body that is mostly concerned with marketing the product at issue, we should be comfortable that their uh, uh, audits and investigations are producing anything that we should be happy about. Couldn't agree more, Peter. All right, well, then let's move on to a, another uh, interesting case. We've got a couple, but let's talk about this one. We're going back to Australia. We're going back. That's a terrible accent, but we're going to Australia because as it turns out, some news came across the wire recently that the Australian Sentencing Council is going to do something revolutionary. It's going to be the first project, at least that I know of, to examine sentencing and animal cruelty cases. Sound exciting to you, Sophie? Yes, and it sounds like uncharted waters in Canada for sure. So what what uh what 
what what strikes you as being useful about an inquiry of that sort? Well, um, first of all, uh, it's it's interesting to figure out. You know, we have we have some pretty decent penalties in terms of uh, criminal code provisions here in Canada. I imagine in theory it's the same um, in Australia, where you can pro- probably have some jail time, uh, some pretty high fines, uh, some ownership prohibitions. Uh, but there's a whole. Uh, different reality on the ground. And at least what we see here, and I would imagine the same holds true in Australia, is that there's a huge disparity between what's in the criminal code and the possible penalties and what actually gets um, pronounced in terms of sentences in the courts. Um, So I think that's certainly an interesting thing to explore for the government. Absolutely. And this is essentially a big research project to actually look into this and provide perhaps some guidelines. And this is a real you know, one of my big hobby horses. Sorry, I had to pause there because like there are now, we we can't hear them, Sophie, but there are horse hooves galloping across. That's our sound effect being put in whenever we get on one of our hobby horses. Um, This is a big one. Yeah, this is a big one for me because I'm of the belief that that's one of the problems here is that animal uh, cases are dealt with idiosyncratically, individually, without any common denominator. And I think that when you get this sort of research that's put into place where we can actually draw together themes, then perhaps they can extrapolate the type of sentence guidelines that would be useful for judges down the road, where they could actually say, well, what are the types of outcomes that we want to achieve, and what are the types of factors that judges commonly cite? Instead of having to rely on disparate any sentencing case that's in your local jurisdiction and trying to throw it before the judge if it's a bad one or a good one. And I think this sort of research or this sort of approach would be really useful in Canada, because God knows if any crime needs to have a a sentence reconsideration, it's animal cruelty. Amen. Yeah. All right. What about, uh, whoa, across the globe? We're just shooting across the globe over to Israel. And this actually has a nice connection to Australia because it's talking about live export, a topic we've touched on before. Sophie, can you fill us in on some basics? Sure. So what happened recently was the Israeli government uh, introduced a bill that would basically phase out the import of sheep and other animals from Australia. And as you mentioned, this, of course, comes in the wake of the Animals Australia horrifying expose of the Australian live export trade. And so what the bill um, proposed uh, by the Israeli government would do is actually reduce by 25% annually the amount of animals that can be imported into Israel. And within three years, the goal would be to have the imports entirely phased out, uh, which is pretty exciting, even though Israel represents a pretty small uh, market with respect to other uh, Middle East uh, countries. Um, Nonetheless, uh, taking this kind of firm stance is certainly welcome, uh, given, you know, how horrific the the live export trade is. And what I found really interesting um, in terms of how this went down in Israel was that um, the the media article I read mentioned that the, the bill was actually drafted in collaboration with Israeli animal rights groups, uh, which I found really, really interesting. Yeah, they're very powerful there. They've had a lot of impact. We know about the uh, very famous foie gras case that, again, I'm sure will be the subject of a future episode. But there's no question that Israeli animal activist groups have done a really good job at uh, collaborating with legislators to get some of this stuff passed. And and I, I just wanted to add a couple of things. I mean, I agree with what you said, Sophie. A big one for me is anytime we can affect markets, that's a huge thing. And I realize um, it's going to be hard, obviously, to get some of the other Middle Eastern countries that have not had such a progressive attitude 
attitude towards welfare to get uh, the same sort of package. And frankly, I think the ball here has to go to the Australian uh, uh, governments where We've talked about it before on past episodes. This has become a real political football there. And unfortunately, it, uh, the Australian federal government does not seem interested in clamping down on this. Um, I'm sure we'll have an update on this when Sophie gets, uh, sorry, when Camille gets back from Oxford. You see, I do it both ways, Sophie. You notice that? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I won't take offense. Inside, inside I'm, joke. I'm happy to be confused with Camille. Um, Camille, I just say, uh, I won't get into that. Um, so Camille is meeting actually right now as we speak in Oxford with some people, including uh, my good friend from way back in Australia days, uh, Jed Goodfellow, who's just an incredible tireless advocate on this issue, working with uh, one of the Australian branches of the RSPCA in that country. And uh, really important to get these things uh, moving and certainly any impetus that Israel can add to this, I think will be helpful for the discussion in Australia as well. Definitely. Okay, let's uh, talk about our last story before heading into our main topic. Are you ready for stampede time? Uh, it's, it's, I am I, so ready. Boots it's kind of over. Cowboy it's over, hat right? on. How's the rodeo in Montreal this year? Is that uh, moving along again or did that get stopped? No, that's done. No it was rodeo. One time only. No rodeo I, in Montreal. I got to tell you, Thank I said goodness. this I said this on the episode we dealt this, Sophie, but as a as a little boy growing up in Montreal, my earliest memories are about heading over to the local ranch and getting into some <laughs> traditional <laughs> so, yeah. some traditional Co- some traditional rodeo. rodeo right? It was just uh, I think I don't know. The Montreal I think, tradition. Exactly. I think Montreal, I think cow, you know, calf roping. That's 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 just me, right? <laughs> anyway, Calgary definitely has more of a connection to this. And once again, the Calgary stampede just ended. And once again, uh, in a more serious note, we mourn uh, the casualties. There were again casualties. Yep, like there are every year. Um there are deaths every year, victims every year. This year, one horse died uh, after breaking his leg in the chuck wagon race. So a tragedy that just keeps repeating itself over and over every year. But they do their best, Sophie. They, they do. do their best to minimize harm to the animals. They're That's all what I'm about told. animal welfare, Peter. They are. First and foremost, the thing they care about most is animal welfare. That's what I've heard many, many times. And... Um, it's a good place for us to eventually segue into our main topic because we had an email or a Twitter, actually. It was a tweet from last, uh, last, uh, last episode's guest host, Samantha, who was wondering why the SPCA in Calgary was not, was charged, you know, that was killed. It offered a great deal. How does this not result in animal cruelty charges? And I guess uh, what I'll say before we, you know, eventually get into this more depth in our main cars, I am not convinced there was any cruelty here. How does that sound? Isn't that crazy? Chuck Wagon Horse dies and no cruelty. What do you think, Sophie? Without even, you know, discussing the legalities of it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think you're right if we look to the legal definition of what cruelty is. And that is, you know, it's a great, it's a great, great sort of segue into where we're going because the real question is, yes, there's no doubt that horse suffered. And the question that we need to answer is whether or not that suffering was unnecessary. And to answer that question... We've got to get into our topic of the day, and I could not be more excited to talk about our discussion today. What is the meaning of unnecessary suffering? So how about we jump right into it, Sophie? All right, we are talking today. Most animal advocates, I'm guessing, 
I'm guessing all animal advocates, I'm going to go out on a limb, unless they were reading my Twitter feed, um, did not realize that uh, just a couple of days ago, we passed, it is the most important animal law case ever decided in Canada, the case called Menard that was decided in 1978. Would you agree with me, uh, Sophie? It's, it's, it's a pretty big day, actually. 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Where did the 40 yeah. years go? Yeah, 40 years, and one of the very few appellate decisions on animal cruelty. And frankly, I'd go further. Um, if I had to, I, I don't think there's any question in my mind. If I had to list, uh, I, I think you can make an argument that it is the most important animal law case ever decided in Canada. I realize that's not irrefutable, but I mean, wouldn't you agree? Like in terms of yeah. impact, it's got to be the most significant. Is that fair? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can throw in, there are other cases that are important. Uh, there's no question we've talked about them here. Reese is important, both winning and losing. I even think the recent Newfoundland custody case is pretty important. You know, you could throw in Nakuda on property and a few others. But I mean, in terms of impact, Menard probably has a greater impact on animals than any case in the country. So we're, we're sort of in agreement with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it ha it this analysis in Menard potentially touches on every single interaction we have with an animal, right? Yeah, I think that's important. And, and we haven't even really talked about what it is, but essentially what, what Menard is, is the case that defines what it means for suffering to be unnecessary. It puts some uh, legal meat on the bones. Sorry, bad animal bad pun. Bad metaphor. It's, it's veggie meat, though. When I'm talking, it was, when I was saying, I was really some talking about some- Some lab-grown meat, Peter. It was, or beyond meat. It was beyond meat, right? In beyond meat, meat burger. Yeah, Beyond Meat Burger on the bones of the um, legal test for unnecessary suffering. And and I can tell you that I've read a lot of jurisprudence from around the world, and there's no question that there are other cases. In fact, we may touch on some of those other cases later on today that deal with this. Menard is one of the first cases um, and, you know, in the relatively modern era, because I'm sure we will we will deal with uh, our old favorite Ford and Wiley. And by the way, here's my hot take. You ready? Can I just give you a hot take right off the bat, Sophie? Go ahead. Ford and Wiley is a better decision than Menard for animals. What do you think about that? I don't disagree. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So, and Ford and Wiley was what, decided. Remind when, me the it? year of, of Ford and Wiley. I think it's. I don't have it it's in like, front of me. I think it's eighteen ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. But anyway, Menard is a significant decision. It was decided by. Uh, at the time, uh, Justice Tony Lemaire, who went on to become the Chief Justice of Canada. So the case has some added precedential weight. It is not a Supreme Court case decided by the Quebec Court of Appeal, and it deals with this issue of unnecessary suffering. So maybe we should start a good place to start, although we're going to probably get into some debate because I've read your notes on this subject, Sophie. Um, what does unnecessary suffering mean, according to the, the Court of Appeal in Menard? Right. So what the Court of Appeal does is set up a two-step test uh, in order to determine whether suff the suffering at question is unnecessary or not. Uh, the first step of the test uh, requires looking at the purpose for which uh, the suffering is inflicted. And we ask ourselves, what, what the suffering was the suffering inflicted for a legitimate purpose? And if that's not the case, if we decide there's no legitimate purpose at, at stake, um, the analysis stops right there. The suffering is unnecessary and uh, the and illegal. Uh, but Can I just it, stop you there for one yeah. sec? I know we're going to talk about the test, but I, I, 
I actually think that's really important, and I think it's a good thing to to sort of touch on because I know we're going to spend most of our time talking about the rest, but but this first part of the test is really a, a straight up, if the suffering was inflicted for a legitimate purpose, if it wasn't, there's nothing more to discuss. And, and the reason I want to highlight that, Sophie, you deal a lot more with animal cruelty prosecutions than I do. I think, this is my hypothesis, uh, having read a lot of jurisprudence, but I think that 99% of our animal cruelty prosecutions don't go any further than that. Is that a fair statement? Definitely. I mean, the cases that end up before the courts, and we can you know, discuss and, and, and further about why that's the case, but the vast majority that end up in front of the court uh, are cases in which the suffering that was inflicted uh, was inflicted for sadistic reasons. So, you know, a dog was beat or kicked or a cat was thrown against the wall. And, you know, there's pretty good social consensus that that's not a legitimate purpose. Sadistic that's right. impulses so when... are not le a legitimate purpose. Um, yeah, so, so this is usually... Uh, Sorry, yeah, so the first step of the test is usually easily met in the vast majority of cases, and they don't test this notion of legitimate purpose at all. Yeah, because it's so obviously illegitimate. When we're dealing with cases of sadistic cruelty, which are the ones that come before the courts more most often, we don't have to test this issue of legitimacy. It's only when we do have to test the issue of legitimacy that we get into some challenges, and I'm sure we'll talk about those. But let's continue on and hear the rest. Okay, we've gone through. It is a legitimate purpose. What's next? So step two, um, in light of the purpose, what were the means used reasonable? And this requires essentially a proportionality analysis where we look at whether the purpose sought to be attained is reasonably proportional to the extent of the suffering that was inflicted. And it's also where we consider uh, the availability of viable alternatives. So there are there other ways of accomplishing this goal that are don't inflict as much suffering. Okay, that's really good. I see the test slightly differently. Um, Go ahead, Peter, I, give us your I actually think version. there's a three-part test. I've always thought it's a three-part test. So the way I look at it is I agree with you on the first part, and I think you're, what you've just stated is sort of the third part, but I've always thought there was an intermediate test. And let's just be, let's, let's be clear for the non-lawyers who are listening to this. Um, <laughs> the judge doesn't actually set out a test, right? We should probably make that clear, Sophie. Like, it's not like the judge says, first you do this, yeah. first you do, second you do this. That's, that's one of the things law students discover when they read uh, law cases. It's unfortunate, but judges don't write in a prescriptive manner. Um, sometimes they do. In fact, more recently, it's more common for them to do so. But this case is sort of, you and I are both sort of extrapolating from the general reasoning of the judge. Is that correct? Definitely. Yeah, so there can be some differences in interpretation. But I have always found it's interesting that, to me, the second part of the test, and I'm reading from the latter part of the judgment, is where he talks about, okay, it's taking place in the pursuit of a legitimate purpose. Is it justified? in light of that purpose, and then goes on to say, um, without necessary does not mean that you have to stop doing it, I'm paraphrasing, but you are obliged not to inflict on animals pain, suffering, or injury, which is not inevitable, taking into account the purpose of sought and the circumstance of the particular case. And I always have found that that issue of inevitability is an important one, and one that's frankly not good for animals. And the reason why I separate that as part of the test, because I do realize that if, if you show that it is inevitable, it's not over at that point, but it becomes a lot harder 
to overcome uh, the next part of the test, which is proportionality. And, and because like the example goes back to what we were talking about with the Calgary Stampede. So this is where I distinguish from my students two types of cruelty. Let's just take, why don't we take the two examples we've used today? Egg production and Calgary Stampede. You with me so far? Yep. Here's my example. This is the way I teach to my students. I, I'm of the view that when you're calf roping, for example, would we agree, if we were to discuss calf roping, to recognize that the pain and suffering that comes from the animal is inevitable? Like, there's really no way to avoid some degree of pain and suffering to the animal when it's an intrinsic part of the purpose. Is that fair to say? I agree. And I look at chicken farming as slightly different. I think that chicken farming bypasses this stage of the test because I don't think it's about inevitability at all. I think it actually moves on to reasonableness. And the reason I say that is there's no inevitable requirement to keep chickens in cages or keep them in manure or keep them in whatever. That is just a choice that we've made that is then a question of reasonableness. And, and I think there is a distinction there because my feeling is that I think the courts give a great deal more leeway to harms that are viewed as inevitable. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? Yeah, no, I, I think you're definitely right on that point. Okay, so in any event, that's the way that the test goes on. Um, the only thing I would add in is there's some questions about, well, when we're dealing with proportionality, how do we deal them with proportionality and what is the nature of the balancing test? But I guess that's sort of a, a fun thing to get into as we dig into the case in more detail. I want to, let, let's just, before we pick apart some of the issues in Menard, what, 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 would, what would you say is the best part of Menard if you had to go on a positive standpoint, uh, Sophie? Well, you know, I, I take the view that there is potential in this general prohibition on causing unnecessary suffering and framing it in these general terms. Uh, of course, you know, we would need to have uh, law enforcement agencies and prosecutors that are willing to kind of go out and test this meaning of what unnecessary means. But I think uh, there's a certain promise that this kind of con like malleable concept holds. Potentially, this concept of necessity um, is something that you know should should evolve with changing mentalities, uh, should evolve with changing science, and has the potential to be used meaningfully. Um, Theoretically, I, at least. I, I agree. Although I would say that in that sense, you know, big parts of Menard uh, are more of an inhibitor than an actual positive thing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's certainly some very uh, interesting um, assumptions uh, and values that are expressed uh, throughout the case. Well, well, before we get there, can I just throw you my mm -hmm. two, two positive things in Menard? I think there are two things that are unquestionably positive from Menard. So I'm going to throw them at you. You tell me if you agree. Okay? Yep. Go ahead. Okay. I'm listening. Sorry, I just, I, I thought I lost you there. So I'm going to tell you the two things that I think are unequivocally positive. One is Menard is better than what we had. There's no doubt that the law prior, I mean, Menard is the first major interpretation of the amendments because the code before had some actual, believe it or not, worse language. But these amendments were put into place in 1953-1954. And Menard comes along, and I think, despite the wording we're going to get into, there's no question that Menard definitely gives a little bit more to the animals than we had seen previously in the jurisprudence. Is that, is that a fair point? Certainly, although we, we, you mentioned it earlier that we have some older case law that seems a little bit more progressive, oddly enough. Yeah, 
I should, but I point out that Ford and Wiley is a UK case. I mean, some of the some of the Canadian cases from the 1960s are pretty brutal stuff. Like they are mm-hmm. just like animals. We don't care. Do what you want. We're not. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I think they were bad. And I think one of the things I remember from Menard is that Menard actually says, it, "Can I can I read it? Let me Go read ahead. the part. I think I'm going to read the part that I like. Okay. Quote away, How about Peter. This? So what happened in Menard is, is that the court, the, the, the accused came forward and said, no, this is not cruelty, no need to even discuss this, whatever. And Justice Lemaire rejects that. So I'm going to read the, probably one of the best lines. I dare to believe that we were given in 1953, 1954, a norm which was intended to be more sensitive to the lot which we reserve, alas, all too often to our animals. I'll, I'll stop there because it gets, it goes downhill from there. <laughs> but, but, but is it? I mean, at least he's recognizing that there was a change in sentiment designed to give more to animals. So I think we can sort of tick that in the positive box. You've convinced but, me of that. Okay. But yeah, now the I'm going to give you... requires some, some very selective quoting because we yeah, run yeah, into all sorts of problematic don't, things. Throughout. Don't worry. We're going to rag on it in a moment. I just want to give the one big, the other second okay, okay. big one. You're right. And, and let, me, let me say before, I, I'm going to preface this one by saying um, I'd be more excited about the next thing if it wasn't ignored every two minutes in the courts. But nonetheless, the question also arose in this case about what is pain, suffering, or injury? And I think the accused argued that that pain, suffering, or injury has to be substantial. And to his credit, Justice Lemaire said no. And here is the quote. The legislator um, um, did not intend, as in cases of assault against human beings, to forbid, though through criminalization, the causing of, to an animal of the least physical discomfort. And it is this extent, but no more, that one may speak of quantification. And I think that's really important. Would you agree with that? I definitely agree, Peter. And that's a a really excellent point you brought up because we generally think of Menard only with respect to this necessity question and and tend to sort of forget how significant it it is with respect to the threshold issue that you just brought up. But that's something that's, you know, useful every day for us in terms of a law enforcement agency. We've been able to bring cases where, you know, dogs or cats uh, or other animals get slapped around and there's no, you know, physical lesions that we can point to on the medical exam to say, you know, this was, the animal was injured. Uh, But as long as we have a a veterinary behaviorist saying that, you know, there was a significant amount of discomfort or fear or pain that was caused to the animal, that's enough to warrant um, charges. So that's something that we use, we rely on uh, on a daily basis in, in our work at the SPCA. Yeah, I'd be a lot happier if I saw more of those cases proceed uh, criminally, but that's for another day. Because I think too often well, that does happen, yeah. and it gets treated as distress. And I don't. I, I think there is a no, distinction between distress and suffering. No, we actually have a couple cases uh, going to court soon crim- with criminal charges in in that kind of scenario. I I believe you, Sophie. I think I may be referring to some other provincial jurisdictions, yes. which shall yes. remain nameless. Okay. Not not the Montreal SPCA's work. <clears throat> so, <laughs> hooray for Menard! All right, let's let's do what we really want to do. Um, boy, Menard gets quite a few things wrong. I I think I cut off some part. I was talking about being more sensitive to the animals, Sophie. But what does Justice Lemaire go on to say after talking about being sensitive to the animals? 
I mean, basically, the judgment is rife with all sorts of references to this, you know, very traditional, very Judeo-Christian worldview where humans are this inherently superior being who have dominion over the natural world, um, including You're animals. You're paraphrasing. He doesn't actually... <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Those are exact words. Yeah, those Sorry. are pretty much the exact I take it back. words. Hierarchy of our world and the responsibilities we impose as their masters. masters. Yeah. <laughs> Animals are subordinate to nature and to man. In, in setting standards for the behavior of men towards animals, we have to take into account our privileged position in nature. Um, and did you did you catch the, the quote on the necessity of meat eating? In oh, I caught that. Believe me, I catch that. I've read this case probably more than any other case. But uh, yeah, so for our listeners who aren't as uh, haven't read the case quite as many times, not not every night before bed like you do, Peter. Um, Menal says, uh, well, Justice Lamar and Menal says, even if it not be necessary for man to eat meat, and if he could abstain from doing so, as many in fact do, it is the privilege of man to eat it. Well, Sophie, you know, when we put this law in, we we. Don't renounce the right given to them, you know, by our position as supreme creatures to put animals at our service to satisfy our needs, right? We don't, we don't do that. I mean, come on. What's, what's kind of hilarious about this, I mean, I, I've seen some judicial interpretations in my day. And again, look, it was 1978. This is the world we lived in. And to be honest, I'm not sure we'd get much difficult today because, hey, everybody, nope. it's 40 years later and Menard is still the governing case. But I mean, I, I think we'd get different wording today. But it's amazing. Like, Justice Lemaire comes up with all of this out of one word. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I've always found it interesting. And I, I wonder if you do that, like, this was a clause put into a statute to protect animals. That's what it's there for. It's clearly there for that purpose. And yet everything you read in Justice Lemaire's decision in trying to set up parameters is about what humans need. Everything. Yeah, I wonder if that's because Lemaire is a human. Oh, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. So let's just say, I mean, luckily, luckily, Sophie, I mean, all these things about privilege and all that, they don't actually have any impact on how we assess the test, do they? It's one of my loaded questions. Yeah, yeah, you're making me pause before answering that. I mean, I'll say they shouldn't. But they do. I mean, every aspect of the test. I mean, if you if you write an entire thing that talks about human position, mm -hmm. and this test is based on what is reasonable, and more importantly, what is reasonably avoidable, how could it not color the analysis of what's reasonably avoidable? Good point. I mean, in fact, it does. So let's take back to our rodeo example. I mean, my view is rodeo is inevitable and that's the end of it. But let's assume for the moment that the question is not whether it's inevitable. Well, we've got to decide whether it's proportional, right? We've got to decide whether it is reasonable in the circumstances to chuck wagon race around um, with these animals in a way that is, you know, considered. In fact, let's do it. Can we, um, can we go through the test? This is always fun. I do this in my class too. So the first question with chuck wagon racing is, is it a legitimate purpose? Because we said earlier, Sophie, that if it's not a legitimate pur purpose, it's, 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 you know, animal cruelty. But, but I mean, how the hell can chuck wagon racing, I mean, chuck wagon racing is just to make people entertained. How the hell can that be a legitimate purpose? 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's crazy. But like we were saying earlier, this that's the type of question that never gets tested, right? Well, it never gets tested. I mean, my view is, unfortunately, that the failure to test is what yeah. actually defines what legitimacy yeah. is. Because I mean, again, yeah, what prosecutors are not willing to bring these kinds of cases forward. It is really hard. I mean, I don't know. Again, you teach animal law at McGill, and I teach it in Alberta, and I go through this with my students, and I'm saying, well, if we're going to say that entertainment is not a legitimate purpose, I mean, what are the impact of that decision? They're pretty broad, like, right? No more zoos, no more circuses. We, we got a lot of questions because we got suffering. So if the least possible suffering is a problem and we've got illegitimate purposes, I mean, the, the hardest part of this test is essentially getting around the illegitimate purpose. And again, when you go through Justice LaMare's decision, it seems pretty clear to me that when he's talking about illegitimate, I think he's talking about a high, pretty high threshold for what's illegitimate. Yeah, and, and another great example that you, you typically bring up when we talk about legitimate purpose is the ear cropping example, which I think is particularly, uh, you know, particularly hits the nail on the spot in terms of illustrating the problem with this, right? Where we, we happily crop ears off dogs um, for what is essentially aesthetic purposes, right, Peter? Mm -hmm. Um, we can go further, right? I mean, we can go further. We, I mean, tail docking, of course, is in the same boat. Very right. legal, by the way, in Alberta. What's the status in Quebec? Um, it is illegal, too. It's been banned by the uh, order Sorry, of veterinarians illegal. here. Yeah, but not banned by the province, no, correct? Banned not by banned by the by veterinarians. The yeah. Correct. So, so it is not banned in Alberta. It is. It remains a legal exercise in Alberta, and I. I don't know about you. Uh, whenever I take a trip to the dog park, I see crop tails and ears aplenty. Yep, definitely. Y you do as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that raises a major question because, like I've always said to my students, if if the whole point of this is to crack down on legitimate, illegitimate purposes, if 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 ear cropping is legitimate. Like what's illegitimate? Short of sadistic? I, I always say I give them my big three. You ready for this? Yeah. And this is just made up, but this is what I, you know, this is essentially what I've seen from the case laws. Here's what's illegitimate. Sadism. So if you're sadistic, that's illegitimate. Mm -hmm. Complete and utter incompetence. That's illegitimate because we, if you think about it, what we're really talking about with legitimate and illegitimate is human values, right? We're not talking about what's legitimate based on the animals. Is that, again, fair to say? Definitely. Yeah, we're talking about what's legitimate to us. So we don't like incompetence. We don't like sadistic. And you ready for my third one? Wasteful. Laziness? Yeah, well, I was going lazy and incompetence. That's in one okay. category. But <laughs> my third one was wasteful. So mm -hmm. a good example of wasteful is the Ford and Wiley situation, where right. essentially they were using a process that was shown not to be helpful for the animal or for the person, right? So in that case, it's completely wasteful. If you're doing a procedure on an animal that is A, going to cost money, and B, going to hurt the animal, how can it be a legitimate purpose? It doesn't have any social advantage. So I'm of the view that those are the big three that are currently regarded as uh, illegitimate. And I think, you know, you raise good questions about whether in, in, in future um, we could look at legitimacy in a different way. But I, I just think that the courts are very reluctant to weigh in on legitimacy because essentially what they're doing is they're making 
a social decision about what's mm-hmm. legitimate and what's not. And until uh, prosecutors are willing to take on more aggressively some of these cases, um, you know, even then, I'm not sure we'll get good results from the courts. But until we we test it, we're sort of left by indirectly with the result that just about everything's legitimate. Right. So everything passes step one of the test. But luckily, when we move on to step two, we got good stuff, correct? Yeah. Yeah. You think so? How does reasonableness get defined? You have to look at the proportionality between the suffering that was caused and uh, the purpose. We sure do. But that suffering, I don't know, is not... I think Justice Lemaire has a few things to say about that, doesn't he? Like, considered in terms of the means by which one seeks the purpose which is justified, again, I'm, I'm, I'm reading about, you have to take into account the privileged position which man occupies in nature. So we have to take into consideration the social priorities, means available and accessibility. Well, that sounds like one of those truck-sized loopholes, because what happens when we start considering social priorities and deciding upon what's reasonable? Well, animal interests get pretty much pushed, pushed to the side. Sure do. I mean, I've argued with my students. I like to put up a little graph on the board. I say, we've got an economic case here. You tell me if this is reasonable. I say, we're going to give the chickens, I don't know, uh, sorry, my inches are going to be completely off. But let's say we want to give the chickens 10 square centimeters more space, but it will cost three cents more per chicken. And or we could give them 20 centimeters more space, but it will cost six cents per chicken. Is it reasonable to require more space for the chicken? And, and to me, these questions are completely, completely insane and completely impossible to answer, mainly because I think we're measuring two things that are completely, uh, they have nothing to do with each other. One is about the well-being of an animal, and the other is about a well-being of some abstract human need, usually economic. And I just think that makes this very, very difficult for courts to resolve when they get into cases of this sort. Right. And I mean, the whole that whole exercise is arguably rigged, right? Uh, Because what we're trying to compare is human interests that are protected by rights, including the right to use property, which animals are right, versus the interests of uh, that property. Uh, It's a it's a pretty, uh, pretty much impossible test. Yeah, it's, it's so, so hard to do when you put these balance in. And, and I think it, it's always seemed to me that the flaw is in putting them in opposition and balance instead of perhaps doing something differently where you ask the human need to justify, for example, just as a subtle change. You said, mm-hmm. okay, all harms must be justified. You've got to prove it. You've got to prove that this is a reasonable uh, 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 a thing to do to cause this sort of suffering. And I do think these cases get very difficult to do um, on the ground, which is why we see so few of them come forward. But nonetheless, maybe there's some hope. Maybe uh, in the next 40 years, oh my God, 40 years, we'll get some case that challenges Menard as the dominant orthodoxy in Canada. What What would you hope to see in one of those cases, Sophie? Well, I'd hope to see something uh, along the lines of what we've seen in some other jurisdictions in terms of 
interpreting in a somewhat at least meaningful way this kind of general prohibition on cruelty on causing unnecessary suffering and you actually mentioned this case at the very beginning of the podcast um, what I'm referring to as an example is the Noah case from Israel which was a, a 2003 decision by the Supreme Court of Israel that banned uh, force feeding of geese uh, for the production of foie gras on animal cruelty grounds uh, and basically eradicated the industry in Israel and in that case I mean uh, I know, Peter, you take issue with the way, uh, you know, this was articulated in terms of uh, the test and how the test was applied. But nonetheless, um, it's an example where a court decided um, that that foie gras, the production of foie gras was not, to put it in Menal's terms, uh, a legitimate purpose or the 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 was not proportional. The the uh, the goal of, of producing foie gras was not proportional uh, to the the inherent suffering that this uh, industry causes to animals. So you know that's one example where this general prohibition on causing suffering unnecessarily was actually interpreted in a meaningful way uh, to protect animals. Sure, I, I take I take your point. And I agree with you. I, I do take some issue with the way they did it. I don't think it uh, really makes sense in a jurisprudential uh, uh, sense. But but nonetheless, I agree with you that what I think is positive about the foie gras case is just a willingness to do otherwise. And frankly, it's not that hard to do. I've suggested in my class just, and this is just a throwaway, right? I'm not I'm not saying this is the answer or the only answer. What if, for example, you must? What if what if you have to say for um, um for example that that harms caused for example so we're going to get into a proportionality analysis what if you what if you determine that the term unnecessary actually weighs the scale in favor of the animal like how crazy is that right instead of having this equal balancing and frankly i don't know about you i don't think menard is an equal balancing because it continuously says that everything is in favor of the human because privilege and blah 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 right. blah blah what if what if, what if we said that it must demonstrably outweigh the harm caused to the animal? So we keep the same test, but we alter the burden of proof and we alter the onus, right? We say it's got to dramatically outweigh or it's got to demonstrably outweigh. So if you are going to cause suffering intentionally to an animal, you've got to show that the benefit to the human demonstrably outweighs the harm to the animal. Like, isn't that a type of change that, that might actually get us to rethink how we deal with suffering? Yeah, that's a, a really good suggestion. I think it would definitely help things along in terms of making this at least somewhat meaningful. Yeah, and I think there are lots of other ways to do it. And I think that's why at the end of the day, Menard, for, for all the good things it does, and we've tried to outline this, it ends up being a pretty disappointing decision that we're still stuck with 40 years after it was originally decided. This is literally what governs animal cruelty in our country, this balancing test that is almost impossible to use in a way that's meaningful for animals and in a way that screens out and allows cruelty to exist. And I should just say to close this out, because I know we're coming to the end of this section, but I, I just want to say, we can't forget that Menard really goes beyond animal cruelty prosecutions. I think Menard is important in that it informs the way we think about unnecessary suffering. And when we talk about suffering in other contexts, so we'll talk about codes and we talk about regulations and we'll talk about all sorts of other things, you will constantly hear about the balance. You'll constantly hear about this balance between harm caused and benefit to the humans. And I think all of those cases use the exact same reasoning intrinsically as Menard does. I totally agree with you. And I mean, this is, goes back to also, uh, you know, the, you're right. It's, it's much broader even than in, in the legal sense of, of how we 
conceive our relationship with animals, right? This is the kind of a balancing test that's discussed also in, in philosophy and animal ethics. Um, it's the main focus of Gary Francione's scholarship and the main criticism he has in terms of how we generally think of our relationship with animals and what justifies us using them. So yeah, it's basically the legal of expression of this much broader idea that, um, you know, we, we can, we're free to exploit and use animals um, as long as we're not sadists in the process. Here, here. I think you said it well. I think we will link to a, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the Menard case. It's actually on the Animal Justice website. It's it's originally written in French, but there is both a French and English translation. So just I should note that when you go to the link on the Animal Justice website, the French version appears first, but don't worry, just scroll down and you'll get to the uh, English version as well. And I think it's an incredibly important case. If you are confused or mystified in any way about the way in which animals are treated in our society, I've always felt that reading Menard should be an enlightening way of understanding more about what's going on. Heroes and Zeros. All right, everybody, it's time for your favorite part of the show and mine, Heroes and Zeros. And we are going heavy. In honor of our special guest today, we're going heavy on the Quebec side of the equation. I know she's been waiting. I'm going to hold her back, so I'm going to let her loose in a minute, and she's going to run. We are giving out our zero. It's a special one today. Sophie... Tell us who's earned the honor. So the, the honor goes to the Quebec Ministry of Agriculture for this episode. Uh, a big fat zero. Um, and I'll tell you why, Peter. I, I'm looking forward to it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be very therapeutic for me, uh, especially because we actually met with them this week on Monday. Um, but so in two, back in 2015, I mean, this is something I, I mentioned earlier on when I was talking about the work that we do at the SPCA. Uh, in 2015, uh, there was a huge um, change in uh, the laws with respect to animals in Quebec. So the, a bill was adopted uh, that basically created a brand new Animal Welfare Act that was exclusively dedicated to animal welfare, and the Civil Code was amended to explicitly recognize animals as sentient beings. And this was really touted as like the watershed moment, the, the beginning of a new era of increased protection uh, for animals in Quebec. And because fact, we all know, we all know, Sophie, that, of course, getting a new law is, is the fix, right? We got the new right, law. We're good right. to go. As long as they're on the books, that's what matters, right, Peter? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, the law was actually great. Um, lots of potential, uh, had lots of nice new things in there. However, what the issue was, was the enforcement of that law. And at the time, uh, we at the SPCA uh, had the power to apply this law. However, uh, we were constrained by our contracts with the Ministry of Agriculture that delegated that power to us and that basically uh, chose to apply the law in the most conservative, lax way possible. Um, so, you know, we would have to ask permission to seize animals, even in cases where they clearly needed to be removed and there were clear infractions uh, to the law. Uh, and, and the Ministry of Agriculture would just simply refuse, force us to continue trying an educational approach. Uh, they would keep granting permits to facilities that had been found guilty of 
penal and sometimes even criminal cruelty charges, um, and they wouldn't let us enforce the law with respect to any other species than dogs and cats. Um, they also, yeah, they also uh, stopped offering any type of mandatory training. In 2014 was the last mandatory training they gave, so basically we weren't able to, to uh, you know, have our new inspectors uh, mandated to apply the law. We couldn't even replace inspectors that left. Um, so basically every single day on the ground, our inspectors were confronted with situations in which animals had been left to suffer due to these crazy conservative uh, policies in terms of, of law enforcement uh, from the Ministry of Agriculture. And finally, we had um, we had the, the forum to air our grievances uh, publicly when an article came out in La Presse, which is a major uh, Montreal newspaper, um, in June. Um, and this was exposed to the general public. Uh, so finally, we were able, um, because uh, I forgot to mention, but also in April, uh, the government just removed our powers uh, and failed to renew our, our contractual agreements to enforce uh, the, the law. And so finally, we were able to, you know, talk about this publicly. Um, and in light of the elections that are coming up in Quebec in October, uh, you know, publicly demand that whoever uh, takes office in October uh, commit to making changes in terms of law enforcement fault policy for this law because it's it's really if there's one thing that I have to say is super discouraging is working your ass off to get good legislation absolutely and then have it not be enforced absolutely um, so we're actually right now worse off than we were in 2014 with our old piece of law wow. uh, which is really really disheartening Wow, that is, uh, we will look forward to following up on the story and wish you the best of luck in getting some of this stuff changed. But a very, very well earned zero. Is that fair to say for this episode? Yeah, a big, 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 big zero to the Quebec Ministry of Agriculture. And anyone who wants to demand change and help us uh, try to rectify the situation can visit brokenpromises.spca.com to sign our petition. Wow, I'm amazed that uh, URL was available, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on to something much more positive uh we have a wonderful hero uh this 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 episode which i'm very excited um it our, our hero is also quebec themed we thought it was a perfect occasion to honor the uh really immense contribution that uh our good friend alana divine has brought uh to animal law she is leaving the montreal spca this week to take on the position of Managing Director at MFA Canada. And uh, Sophie, I know you have a lot to say about this. Definitely. So I've been lucky enough uh, to call Alana a mentor, a colleague, a boss, and now uh, for the past couple of years, a best friend. Uh, she has really, you know, taught me almost everything I know about uh, animal law, animal protection. Uh, she has been a great role model. She's, I think Peter, you'll agree, like, probably the toughest animal law person we know she's bold and you know gets shit done like she's she's a force to be reckoned with um, absolutely yeah and uh you know basically all the great work that we're doing today at the spca uh, is directly attributable attributable to alana uh jumping on uh, on with the SPCA 10 years ago and making it into the, the progressive organization uh, that it is today. Um, and she's been instrumental in just shaping uh, the legal landscape for animals in Quebec. 
um, and has, you know, uh, the, the list of accomplishments are really too long. Peter's going to kill me if I, if I attempt to list them all. But, you know, you had her on recently to discuss uh, her successful fight and our successful fight together against uh, breed-specific legislation, both in Montreal and provincially. Um, and she's just, yeah, without a question, uh, the most brilliant and bold advocate for animals that, that I personally know. Um, and she'll be sorely missed at the SPCA, but we wish her the best of luck in her new endeavor at Mercy for Animals Canada, where I'm I'm confident she will do just absolutely amazing things for animals. Yeah, I agree. And it'll be, uh, she's still part, of course, of our uh, wider community of animal advocates across this country. We're all doing slightly different things, but we're all a uh, very close-knit community. We all know each other well. And uh, I've known Alana not quite as long as you have, obviously, but uh, I've known her a long time, interacted with her on many files, and I can attest that uh, she is all of those things, that she works as hard as anyone I know for animal issues. And uh, I don't call it a loss because I think she's moving on to revitalize another organization, and it's fitting to honor her as our hero because uh, she's doing great work and uh, will, I, I'm sure, have a word or two to the Quebec government about uh, uh, what they've been doing and maybe our hero can kick our zero, uh, you know, into action. Yeah, they're definitely not done with her, that's for sure. It was actually funny in our meeting on Monday, um, they initially seemed really happy to hear that she was leaving the SPCA <laughs> and then they Googled Mercy for Animals Canada. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'll let you imagine their faces. Of course, uh, I can tell you that, you know, Sophie's no slouch in the toughness department either. So, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure she's going to hold uh, them to the fire just as much as will, uh, mercy for animals down the road. I'll do my best, Peter. Sophie, it has been uh, an incredible pleasure. I hope you will come back and visit us on Paw and Order uh, another time. I won't uh, wish you well in French because I know that would offend you, literally, the way I butcher <laughs> the French language. I apologize greatly. I would say, Sophie, uh, you could buy me lunch when we see each other next, but that's not going to happen, as we know, because that never happens. So uh, I'm sure we'll run into each other in person soon, and I look forward to it. I look forward to it, and thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. See you next time on Fawn Order. Bye. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.